0: Hey, I'm Lynn Rogala. And I'm Ali Diliberto, and we are coming to you from the ladies' room. So we can talk about removing
1: stupid, frustrating, and toxic shit from the world in a way that's not prim enough for the dinner table. Just a quick heads up before you head with us into the ladies room today ali and i tried out a new recording platform that did not perform the way we had hoped it would in addition she is having some stress fidgeting in the first few minutes which you'll understand when you hear um, what's happening on the update so in the first five minutes or so you're going to hear a little more background noise than we normally have and the quality smooths all out by about minute 13 or 14. Normally we would re-record, but the things that we're talking about were so time-sensitive and happening in the moment that we wanted to preserve the conversation the way it happened at the time. So thanks so much for hanging out and thanks for joining us in the ladies' room. Okay, welcome back to the ladies' room and I'm going to quit saying the episode numbers because we mixed them up this week and um, that bothered me, I'll, I'll be honest.
0: Well, yeah, I agree. I like things to be very precise. It's like when somebody else writes on my notebook or in my journal. I'm like, no, no, I can't take it.
1: Oh, that's an assault. <laughs>
0: <laughs> True.
1: Eric used to do, um, he loves Sudoku. And when we used to travel all the time, he used to love to, um, he had these Sudoku books that he, put, he would take on the plane, and he just mm-hmm. kept them in his suitcase. And I one time opened it, and on just a couple random pages, filled every square with a smiley
0: face. <laughs> I could just see the twitching that that would have inspired. Yep.
1: I wanted him to feel loved.
0: <laughs> I don't know. If I loved you I so much. I nagged you.
1: I love you. Yeah. I mean, my sis, I think it was my sister who said this one, or maybe I read it somewhere that um, marriage is just figuring out the exact way to torture your partner. Like until you die, the, the things that really bother them, like the things that just
0: get under their skin and just do those things. John and I were listening to like a recorded sermon from that church that I love today. And the pastor made some kind of joke, like that in our faith, we're not called to just purely obedience and do whatever the other person says. Like we're called to friendship. And he's like that thing where you're just supposed to be obedient and do whatever the other person says that's called marriage. And he was like laughing just cause he's like, just kidding, honey. But John laughed really hard. And I was like, Hey, Not funny. Well, I don't know if maybe he's unclear
1: which one of you is supposed to be obeying and doing everything the other person says.
0: No, he was very clear that he was the one who was (laughs) supposed to. And that's why he was laughing. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not a funny joke.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. No.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So our topic today, we were talking about it just before
1: we came online, is kind of a mishmash of a bunch of things. Um, so, for any of you that listened to episode five, where we talked about helping in a crisis and that Josie was missing at the time, um, she's been found. And we wanted to give an update on what's happening because is it fair to say that the crisis is still ongoing, even though she's
0: home? Right. We were in a little crisis. We were in a lot. We were in crisis before she went missing. So, it's, yes, for sure. There's this, but it's it, for sure we're super thankful that she's found. Um, and we, we just knew as listeners and consumers of stuff that we love, that it would drive us a little crazy if we didn't get an update. So we wanted to.
1: So we have a three pronged podcast today. So one is to give the update on what's happening with Josie, which is by the time this goes live, we'll probably be stale information, but <laughs> <laughs> it's Aww. what we do. And um, also to continue the conversation about people working inside toxic systems um, and we still have an unfulfilled promise about, like we talk, we have a podcast, um, podcast six is about systems that pull for genius. And we were talking about that individuals. We still need to record what I'm sure will be two of N about that <laughs> one, but we want to touch on it. And three, we're going to do kind of, um, in, in a previous episode, we did a toxic system sampler where we said, there's no possible way that we could talk about every toxic system that we encounter you know that exists in the world and at one time there's just too many and so the way we're going to take it on is when we brush up against one we're just going to talk about it so we're kind of doing another
0: toxic system sampler so would you say
1: that's fair the three yes
0: but i don't know what 2n is so i have to go back that mean
1: so okay that's me being a math geek again okay so we had episode part one of systems that pull for genius and then we're going to do two of and then I said n because I don't know like how many it just a hold this a space holder okay yeah, right and excellent and, and it really is showing my math geekness because most people use x for an unknown but when you're counting something you usually use n or m or k all right right now you know. <laughs> all right perfect which letter you pick for the thing that you don't know depends on what you're talking about <laughs> so, okay one to n episodes about this so we're, we're, and we're only kind of teasing it here
0: so shall we start with just the update just the basic update um so we um we recorded help me out we recorded the podcast Wednesday on a Wednesday yep. and then Thursday about one o'clock we got a phone call that um from the group home that she'd run from. And this is this is actually so beautiful, right? Because so many people were praying and sending energy and love, like how they were found feels really, really like part of that to me. But um, someone had taken them in the last night and was calling around looking for places to help them. And the director of this little group home answered the phone, figured out it was the kids, and then convinced this guy that, you know, These were actually missing kids that he'd been fed a story and the police were able to go, go and pick the kids up. So that the odds of that, right. Pretty don't feel really big, even in a state that doesn't have a zillion resources. So, right. Or it doesn't have a zillion people that they would be found by someone kind. Right. Super thankful. And that they would call the group home that the director would have had time to answer the phone at that moment. Just a cool, you know, a cool, way that they were found so we immediately went to get her of course she was found the day the podcast went live so we recorded
1: it on wednesday came out on thursday she was found that day
0: yeah yeah that's um and so right like i had a kid who ran from a group home right we've been dealing with her stepping down from residential care and trying to keep her safe and Safe and look at, you know, how do we really deal with this really challenging situation um, with a kid who I'm, you know, crazy in love with, but we haven't been able to find the right mix of how do we start to make some progress um, yet. So we were driving, you know, two plus hours to go to get her. And Everyone who'd been, you know, kind of in our community who was like around us, she has a case manager and she has we have friends who work in, you know, mental health and in the system, so to speak. We're kind of all around us and trying to figure out what what was going to happen next, because um, we didn't have essentially like a really clear plan because we'd applied to several group homes are several residential facilities because we were like, okay, she, she didn't make it quote in the step down. So we need to step her back up. But we got like, I think three denials that afternoon and two of the denials from people that it sounds that like facilities that really specialize in kind of this particular type of um, kiddo where there's adoption and early childhood trauma and all that reactive attachment type of, of stuff um, denied her because the report that the last group home or the last residential care facility she'd been in, um, was totally inaccurate. Like the just had like misrepresented all this stuff, which, which is one of the things that she does is makes up these really fantastical stories. So she had like represented that she was like a cocaine addict and that she let things on fire. And no, none of those are true. Like a hundred percent, no way any of that's ever happened. And so she was denied from facilities based on things that she had said that wasn't true and that the psychologist never verified or the report um, verified. And she even, we found out, received treatment for some of those things based on pure fabrication, even though the team knew none of that was true. So it's really interesting. Um, But she, um, the facility that she'd stepped down from um, residential care ended up, I mean, they, they went through a ton of hoops. Our therapist who was there, I think kind of really genuinely cared about this kid and, and really pushed for her to be readmitted. And so they did, you know, in a pretty heroic way, we drove her for four more hours to that facility. And she was there that night, which was a huge amount of relief, um, And also super, super hard, right? Like imagine, I still can't articulate the pure terror, right? The pure terror of my kid's missing. I just want to know that she's safe. And um, she was, her first response was another threat to run. And I have never been so angry in like my whole life, I don't think. She wasn't even with me when I got that threat and whatever. And she was, I mean, I wasn't going to literally strangle her but I can't even articulate the swing of emotions where you're like the normal response. I you would expect as a parent is like, Oh, my kids, you know, like, mom, I'm really sorry. Like everybody's crying. And I got like defiant. Like if I don't get what I want, I'm going to run again. And after the experience of having her disappeared, it was just terrifying.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and just to set the context, Um, this is a child who needs a lot of care, who needs a lot of structure, who needs, who still needs a lot of treatment, um, which is part of the crisis you were in before she went, because you didn't think at the time she was really ready to step down to a group home, which is part of what we want to talk about, right? Um, That that decision was made not based on the information that you would have wanted to be based on. Right. Um, And so that, that was an ongoing crisis
0: that she ran in the middle of. Right. For sure. So we, you know, we were super thankful, like, okay, at least she's here. This is probably not going to be a good, you know, she's probably going to be able to stay at the facility because we didn't get a a result. We need something more specialized, but she'd missed this eval the week before when she was, um, on the run where I had spent probably three hours making phone calls, trying to find someone who could do this type of eval. And then um, another like four and a half hours putting together all the information that the doctor asked me for. So a huge amount of investment was made in trying to make this happen. Um, So we were like, okay, she's gonna be at this residential place. We're gonna drive eight hours each way plus another, You know, it was like a 15 hour of driving in a day plus the eval. So we were just like, all we have to do is get through the day and get that done. They put, we put her on an ankle monitor for the transport. Like we just need this eval. And in the middle of the eval, we got a phone call um, from this residential facility, essentially telling us to pick her up that day. And I was like, wait a minute, she's with me here. Like I'm four hours away from you. Like what's happening? And, you know, they told us Medicaid wouldn't fund. Um, they didn't need, the person who's calling me didn't even know the child was with us. And we were kind of back at square one with no plan, right? Like no structure for her to be in the home. We, we were not even supposed to stay at home that night. Like we were just in total abject panic and, um, they did agree to keep her that night. So we went back and she was there. And then, um, I will say like, heroic efforts were made by everyone in our world that could have had it. It's like we have friends who used to work in the legislature that called board members that called the governor that um, did everything they could to put pressure on this organization, not to step down this kiddo. And, um, and then we picked her up that next day. She's been home for three days and that's sort of the, the blow by blow. And we, are like every minute of the day trying to figure out what's going to happen next, because we're just in the middle of you know trying to trying to problem solve a crisis, right yeah, an ongoing a crisis that's been going on
1: for weeks because you said just just now that um, Medicaid wouldn't fund a couple of days ago, but that was the original step down to the group home too, right was not a medical decision but a funding decision.
0: Right right? Right. Not a family decision or a medical decision or, or whatever. Right. So
1: what we wanted to talk about the systems that went into the current crisis that's happening in your family um, because of how they're designed.
0: Yes. So one of the things I was super aware of last week, like was or in the last couple of weeks, is like the systems really don't work, right? Like all these, which isn't shocking, right? Like, and all the things we've talked about. Wait, wait, but um,
1: wait, wait, wait. A government <laughs> system. Kidding me. It's designed in a way that doesn't serve the people it's intended to serve. Hold on. Remember, we were talking about meaning to lie down <laughs> while we record? I just, I need a minute. I'm gonna need to get my smelling salts. I'm gonna need to right. process that information that a gigantic bureaucratic system. <laughs> is not designed to produce good outcomes.
0: Good things. Right. Right. Lynn texted me like, Hey, I hear this clicking noise. I'm like, Oh yeah, because I'm clicking this little thing I was holding in my hand, because even thinking about it is, you know, creates all this tension. So I put it down. I'm sorry. Oh, okay, Put down your fidget. I'll get you. Yeah. put like, <laughs> Use something quieter. Um, right. I mean, and you know, government nonprofit systems, like, I mean, all the, all the different pieces of this, that, no, like nothing worked together in a fantastic way. But I was really moved by how many individuals who are really heroes, really working in systems that make it really hard. Not even for their individual greatness like we talked about, um, you know, on the last podcast. But like that isn't even a factor. But they're working with systems that are so bad inside of trying to accomplish their work in the lives of families in this case, um, that their hands are really tied, but that these individuals are just heroes, like just, you know, amazing, amazing, often amazing, amazing people. And I still feel like most of the people we interacted with from, you know, the police to organizations that were supposedly not amazing, like for missing and exploited children, the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, absolutely phenomenal. Um, our local police department, our, our communities, like even people in some of the organizations really just did everything they could and would have done everything they could that they were able to. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we get super angry about how the systems are failing, that we have people who work miracles every day with these systems because that's who they are.
1: Right, yeah, they are able to work with their hands and feet tied. I mean, you right. have a friend who's given her life um, to helping these kinds of kids in crisis, and she's not even involved through her work with Josie's case, and she's taken it on almost like a part-time job um, to try to make something happen. And that's a resource most parents would never even dream to have access to, and even she hasn't been able to get anywhere. Um you know, doing everything she can, like in every spare minute that she has.
0: Yeah, and I loved. To, I was talking to her this week, and she's like, "I love how you point to all these things in the system because I just show up, you know, for my job in the system." Um, and she's a chief juvenile probation officer in town, and she really is a hero for kids. Like, I can't. I mean, if I just even spent an hour talking about all the different jobs she does in this community it would be mind blowing. But she, um, she said, like, I don't even think about how badly the system's function. I think about how, like, I'm not a very good bureaucrat. (laughs) She gets on her calls with, you know, all the, all the team calls with all the other teams. and she's like, I'm not, I'm not a very good bureaucrat. I'm like, yeah, thank God. You know? And John loves to tell the story when he left education that he told the admin, the administration that he was having, a meeting with like you guys all went and got master's degrees and some of you have doctorates and spent all this time because you wanted to work with kids and these kids don't even like you. I'm like, yes, those are, those are some of the things that are happening in all these systems. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you said that because one of the things that
1: gives me hope, this is a little one-off about education. Um, We, we changed Riley's school right, right before COVID. um, And she had a math teacher that was absolutely just phenomenal. I, she was way behind in math, because, not because of her skills, but because of the instruction she had received. And her teacher got her totally caught up. And also she, um, as a math teacher, I just like, she, she warmed my heart. I saw one of the little surveys she sent out to all the kids and they asked, she asked in such a gentle way. Um, basically, she didn't ask this in so many words, but basically, you know, do you have enough to eat at home? Do you have enough resources at home? you know, to make sure that the whole child was taken care of inside math. Um, and then the school lost her and we were all devastated, but she's actually working on um, a doctorate in some kind of educational policy or something. And I'm like, yes, yes, that's where we need you. As a, I, I'm sad for our loss here in Tucson, but yes, we need someone who has, who really gets it, who gets right. like the whole picture of um, what it takes to educate somewhere making policy because the people making policy often aren't educators. Um, so that's like a little squirrel off, but, you know, that was our loss and the nation's gain. I'm looking forward to her, you know, having something to say at the national in the national conversation about education. Yeah, that's good. Speaking of toxic systems, right?
0: Right. So it's, it's good. Like it loops back into the earlier conversation about, um, like one, essentially like one, what's something major that we can point to about why these systems aren't working. Um, and I will say like, I have way more resources than most people in crisis. Like I'm an adoptive parent, which already gives me a level of privilege and intellectual access and experience that a lot of parents in crisis don't have. Um, I live in a small state, so people are pretty well connected post adoption services in our state has been absolutely amazing. Like I already called a friend of mine who um, is a former, le- former legislator and gave him a list. Like, here's all the stuff that like, I want to testify when they're doing the budget, like how well this department operates and how consistently they've supported us over the last couple of years.
1: So say um, a second though and say, because um, we just before we recorded the podcast, I said, there's some things that you talk about that you're so familiar with because of your long history that I don't know <laughs> because I've talked to you. So say, just create what post adoption support is and what their goals are and and the supports and services, like what's their intention? Just say what they are, just define it.
0: So I actually didn't really even know until we were in crisis, which is one of the things Lynn and I were talking about is how often we don't need a system until we're in crisis and then we encounter how bad you know, it works or how well it works or whatever, but often how poorly it works. Um, but in this case, so when we adopt, so when you adopt in Montana, I've only adopted here, so I can't speak to everywhere else. Um, you have some options that you can request. So the most common is I would like to keep her Medicaid. Right, she's likely to have a super high need that would well exceed most families' ability to support her um, as she goes through, or as any adopted child goes through, you know, their life. And so you can you can like keep some of the resources that the state gave the child as a child who was like under their umbrella, um, or custody. Right. who had been So
1: and put into foster care, um, right. And the state was kind of taken care of, which by the way, I had never heard of that, um, that those resources could stay with a child after adoption. And I think that is totally brilliant.
0: It's really brilliant. And actually that piece is super, super common. And there are some others like, Um, often there's like a budget, you know, that can be given, like if you had, let's say you adopted a kid with like, um, really bad, really intense physical needs. And the family said, well, when they're adopted, we lose respite care, or we would lose case management that helps us access these resources. Like the state can say, you know, you kind of negotiate it before adoption, you'll keep whatever it is. But as foster parents, we had, never kept a dime of any of the money that we got for parenting, you know, like for raising the kids. Like we just we just felt like we wanted a level playing field and we were going to provide for all the kids equally and that the money did better being given back into the system. And so we weren't really that aware of what post adoption services could do, but a few like a couple of years ago when I was like, "Holy cow, I have a kid in total crisis." how do I access some help for this kid? Cause we were living out of state. Um, Josie's um, original caseworker had uh, I'd reached out to her cause we'd stayed, you know, friendly with each other. And she said, you need to call this person at post adoption services. So their real goal is to, to make sure we don't have failed adoptions. That's, that's essentially the, like they're meant to be able to support and provide resources. They're, like so far, everyone I've met on the team is absolutely phenomenal, super well-educated. They know every resource that we can access in the state and out of the state. And they have the freedom to do things like the eval that my that was recommended for my daughter was a $2,500 eval. Like we couldn't have afforded that right now. Um, and so they can step in um, and pay for things and recommend certain things. They can... Um, they can, like if if we said, you know, we need therapy right now or we need some kind of support, will you pay for it? They, they would absolutely do that. So okay. that's kind of the venue. I mean, they can't materialize things that don't exist, but their whole agenda is how do we keep families together and how to make these situations that often get super, super hard, you know, work because this story is like, really common. Everybody knows somebody who adopted kids when they were little and then went through, you know, five years of hell after they hit puberty or, you know, were never able to figure out a way to make it work. And if the family was resourced or supported differently, that might've made a difference.
1: Yeah. I I actually, I'm not, I'm not anywhere near as close to the adoption story as you are. And even I know someone who had to actually relinquish someone, uh, a child that they adopted. He and his wife adopted the child and it was too much for them to handle and they had to relinquish her back into the system.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was super lovely for us is we had, we had a lot of our people who adopted people or people who knew, you know, somebody in their community that called us in the last couple of weeks and said, you know, we adopted five kids and we relinquished a kid in this situation. And, um, You've already been through so much more than we ever went through. Like it just, you know, like nobody could acknowledge it in a way, in the same way, other than somebody who'd been with it. And we don't want we have no zero plan to relinquish. And we're su- also super thankful for the systems that are working well to try to resource us so that we don't have to look at choosing between the well-being of the family and the well and and the family staying intact, which happens.
1: Right, no, it does, and it's another one of those situations too, where if you're not in it, then maybe your opinions about it sh- is something you keep to yourself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you know, having and I have to say, like I couldn't have even imagined. Like I was crying to Lynn earlier today. Like I couldn't even imagine that that would even be a conversation somebody would even say to me. Like, how do we keep your family together? Wouldn't even have been on my radar. Um, and I'm thankful for the graciousness of somebody who had has the wisdom to look at if we maintain this level of difficulty, we're headed toward a crisis. So what can we do now? Um, But I was like, I'm a warrior mom. Like, I don't even know what to fight for. How do I do this? Like, you know, that's, that's sort of like who I am, right? Like roll up my sleeves and fight for my kids is why I think God gave me the kids I've had. But
1: right. I mean, that's why you were a therapeutic foster parent and why all of your children are adopted um, and all from hard early childhood trauma. Like all four yeah. of your kids had some kind of really hard, like we said about Josie, things that most adults would never have to dream of walking through, happened to them while they were tiny. Right, right. Yeah, it's true. So, so, so oh, were you done? Because I was. Go ahead, on. go ahead, cue me up. I was going to cue you up on the next thing, but I want to wait until you're done talking about post-adoption support.
0: That, that was really, like really phenomenal. Um, and all the pieces, like for the most part, so many systems did work super well. And, and like, there were several systems where you're like, wow, that system is actually functioning at a really high level, both the people in it and the systems working super well, um, that we're really, really thankful for. And there's still some pieces there. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of pieces where you're like, It points to, it points to the things that don't work in the system. So one of the things that went wrong in our story in this process is that when Josie was ready to step down, um, (laughs) she wasn't ready to step down and we didn't know what had queued us up for sort of this crisis, right? Like I didn't know that I had a child getting treated for things that weren't even really what we were dealing with because it's what she said. And, um, you know, that queued up for, for a lot of wasted money and expense and energy. Um, the team in the residential treatment facility eventually got on the same page, but it was so far into the process that, you know, I think the, that my kiddo really learned how to work the process, unfortunately, and stay out of doing the work.
1: Without saying what it was, because I, I that's, I think, her private. <laughs> but I want to give an analogy, because, again, this is a place where, <laughs> sometimes you swim in these places where I'm like, yeah, it would be like if I sat down and, and started talking computers or math or whatever on the podcast, you'd be like, hold on, timeout. Time Wait, out, time out. I didn't even know what 2N meant. So, you know, 2-2-N, no, two, two 2-T-O-N. Two, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to pause you and I'm going to throw in an analogy. What you're talking about would be as if she went to the hospital and they treated her for cancer, but what she really had was lupus is essentially what happened. But from a mental health standpoint, because she self-reported lupus rather than asking the mom, "Hey, does this kid have lupus?" No, she doesn't have lupus. She has a tumor, Um, and so not only did they not treat the tumor, they treated lupus for months and months and months, even though that was just her making that up. Like, "Oh, I heard about lupus. It sounds cool. I must have lupus." Now, this is (laughs) this is just an analogy, but it's a good analogy so that it's clear what you're talking about. That there was like a specific diagnosis that she received treatment for that she just made up um, and was not what she actually needed treatment for. So,
0: Right. And you love to say, I mean, you've said, even in this conversation, like, wait, what is this thing? What is that piece? Like I do know a lot more than the average parent who's having to navigate what we're navigating. And I was like almost ashamed how much I didn't know that if I had known it and I don't really do shame and guilt, but I mean, it was like shocking to me how much I didn't know that I, that I could have known and maybe where I could have intervened along the way, because this is the organization I was a foster parent through. So I was like, I mean, I feel like I'm part of this organization. And, you know, I looked at the clinical director when I, when I was picking up Joe's on Wednesday and I said, you guys failed this child and this family. And we're a part of this system. Like we're, we believe in this and we have to do better. And he's like, yeah, on the other side of this crisis, like, we're going to look at what happened and we're going to, we're going to address it. And I know this man, right? Like, I have no doubt that that will happen, but it doesn't change the fact that we have a crisis that probably could have been, we probably could have had a different result, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you weren't pounding on the table. Which
0: isn't necessarily from Josie. I want to say like, Josie's a super challenging kid, but we for sure could have had a different result from the family.
1: Right. And it's interesting that you said that you feel guilty about not knowing because I sit and when you meadow me, if you don't know what recording is, you need to get caught up on our podcast. When you meadow me all the stuff that you've had to done or have to do, had to Had to done. Had to done. Had to done. Um, I don't sleep in the summertime very well. Um, or when you're walking through my crisis with me. <laughs> right. I sit and I'm just so overwhelmed. And I actually do a pretty good job of holding a lot of stuff in my head. And I'm yeah. like, wait, what's that piece again? And just just the quantity of shit that you have to wade through is astonishing. And I don't know how any one person like literally that's part of the problem in this is that we're now in a situation where you are a single individual managing um, a number of moving parts that's normally managed by like a team. right? Like Josie would be somebody's project and it would be a project (laughs) with like five team members you know, Project Josie. And you're one person now doing what literally a team was doing before, and each member of the team has like their whole. It's almost like uh, I, I love analogies, and here comes another one. Like you had this house that was being built, and you have the plumber and the electrician and whatever, and now you're thrust into the role not only of general contractor but you're supposed to now know everything there is to know about plumbing and everything there is to know about electrical and what all the codes are and what inspections you need and how does the roof get rated, and how deep does the foundation, like all these details. I don't know how any one person, no, no, no one person could hold it all. It's not even possible.
0: to know, and one of the things I said before is when I was, I mean, I was never like a purely stay at home parent. Like I ran a business and I, but I I was really able to step away and I wasn't the primary income provider, but today I am in our family. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like just the hours of paperwork I'm back to doing when I was a foster parent, actually significantly more. And I have a job and a lot of other responsibilities. And so it does get It gets very intense, but I do appreciate that you try to hold everything in your head. Like, remember when I was dating after my divorce and I had to give you like a little spreadsheet, like this guy is the guy I met at Salsa. This is the one I don't know. You know, like, yes, I I don't. Did you actually literally give me a spreadsheet? I don't remember that. I think I typed it up. Like, Or I think I at least like, maybe it was like a Google doc where I'm like, here's all the guys. This one's off the list. You know,
1: we definitely have to do a podcast about teaching you to flirt and date. We should definitely do that soon. We could use something amusing. More more lighthearted and amusing. Um, That was a fun one because I'm like, I don't know how to access that. Not because I'm not good at flirting, but because I'm
0: super good at flirting. And I don't even know. How do I teach somebody who really doesn't get it?
1: It's like breaking down, driving a car. You're like, oh, you turn it on. But what does that mean? Oh, I put my foot on the brake. I push the button you know, all the things.
0: Okay. And when, when I met John, like, we'll tell you that story, but that was one of the things he said is like, Oh, finally a woman who knows how to flirt. And I was like, that's the funniest thing of Excellent. all time. Excellent teacher. Um, <laughs> okay.
1: So back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, right. I wanted to cue up something that we were talking about before, but did you have anything more to say about? No, I think
0: I know where you're going and I okay. think that's great.
1: So, um, I love, I've said this before, this is something the podcast is going to be a lot about. I love the way that you think about systems. I love the way that you create them in your mind, that you have ideas for it. They like live in your head. I know you can see it the way that I see some things. And this is one that you see and I don't see. I mean, I can see it when you create it. I'm not blind to it. But like the way you hold it and create it. And you have all these ideas on how to improve systems. And you've been speaking about that in this crisis. So, Can you talk a little bit about, like, outcome-based incentives inside Medicaid? So talk a little bit about, like, Medicaid making the decision where you're not even the customer, you know, you're the parent, but you're not even part of this decision. And then um, the ways that you, you know, thoughts that you have about outcome-based, I mean, this is mental health, but I think this could change Um, medical health, too. And then maybe I can chime in a little bit on the
0: government contract contract we were talking about. It's perfect. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I know the impact getting paid for the results had on me, and that really made me curious about how often we pay for time, and we don't, as, as entrepreneurs, um, pay for results. And I think it gets very complex very quickly, but the purer the compensation plans that pay for the results we actually want, the better companies will function And society will function unquestionably. But I have two great examples from the story that we're talking about. One is Josie had um, part of her team in residential care was someone whose job it was to manage her step down. And this person was involved the whole entire time. Every treatment team meeting we had, I had multiple conversations with her. But when we got a denial from Medicaid that they weren't going to keep funding, which you kind of expect after you know eight months or so. Um, Well, especially because they weren't treating what was wrong with her, right? Her lupus. (laughs) Right.
1: We can't make any
0: progress with this anymore. Yeah, she has a tumor, so. (laughs) it's Not getting better. But they had told me, you know, a week before, this kid's not anywhere near stepping down, right? So we were in total free fall at this. I mean, we weren't, we were like, okay, we need to manage this. We've been really clear what we think this step down should look like, you know, both all the therapists, all the professionals, like the family, everybody's on the same page. But as it got closer and we couldn't put those pieces together, this person didn't do their job and lied to me about the fact that they had done their job. So they kind of just like half-assed it, you know, like, we were told, you know, we've applied to every facility in the state, and they've all we've got only denials. Well, that wasn't true, and then they'd only gotten one denial. you know, so there was like, and also, we've asked Medicaid for more time, and we don't think they'll give it to us. But after post-adoption services stepped in and put some pressure and ch- some children's mental health people, we actually got like, yeah, we just decided there wasn't anything therapeutic we could do as a team. So we wanted the kid to discharge. But instead of saying that to the family, we were like trying to make all these missing pieces move. And then I had a missing kid within set eight, eight or nine days of that. So we, that part of it was like terrible. But this person got paid whether she did her job or not, right? There's probably likely an outcome you know, like there's probably an impact now that something went wrong, but she handled me as a parent instead of treating me like part of the team. But if she had been paid for producing a quality result instead of just showing up, we probably would have had a different, a different outcome. Right. And it's funny. Cause I was
1: talking to you about this about at my last job where I actually, they had me actually writing code, which is absurd. It's been years since I did that. They had me doing it. And, um, I remember a day that I made a mistake and then I had to spend a couple hours undoing the mistake. And I was like, I got paid more for making that mistake and fixing it than I have the rest of the last few weeks when I did everything right the first time. Right? (laughs) I mean, not that I would want to be penalized, like everyone makes mistakes. So obviously we don't want to, you know, make a mistake, something that I'm horribly penalized for. But she didn't even make a mistake. Right. Like, because the outcome, she, I don't want to say she doesn't care, but the outcome,
0: like, she has no skin in the game of the outcome. And I think that unfortunately, the system is created, I think I actually really like this woman, um, which makes it even more upsetting because I genuinely liked her and believed she heard who I was as a parent and what we were cared about for this kid and all that stuff. But they are so used to, Managing the parent that they and and with no responsibility financially to the parent or anything uh, that they just managed me. And I think it's part of a pattern and not not a one-off. the same pattern that had a kid come in, report all the stuff that's not true and never synthesize any information or even ask the parents. And that is not great for trauma services for kids in these situations because, they tend not to be the most most accurate reporters and that gets very complicated, very fast in mental health. And, you know, please don't, please only email Lynn if you have things to say about that because I do understand some of the complexity. And if the, if the therapist, like if we, let's say we had a whole pie of money that the therapist was going to get paid. If she had been paid for um, partially, like even just bonus for continuity of care from, what had happened in the child's life previously or what was happening at the end of things that alone probably would have incentivized enough behavior to integrate, you know, a couple phone calls to this child's therapist, who she'd worked with since she was three and a couple things, like something in the process that would have um, at least made a different result possible. But because we disconnect how money flows, we end up incentivizing really bad Um, outcomes because like Lynn said, Medicaid doesn't even work for me in this situation or really even for my kid. (laughs) They work. To to put a little more detail on what you just
1: said, one of the things they didn't do, and and it's crazy to me that they would let any teenager self-report without checking with the parent, like even just from their ability to remember and be accurate. Like Riley wouldn't lie about something, but she'll say, oh, you know, that happened you know, five years ago. I'm like, it happened six months ago. What are you talking about? Like she just had no idea. Um, They didn't call. Not only did they not check with you, they didn't call Josie's old therapist that had been working with her for years. And because there was, which
0: we requested,
1: right? Like a five or 10 minute phone call. If they were invested in the outcome, if that had looked, because that phone call didn't occur as valuable to them, right? That there was some, um, some value to be extracted from that phone call, that there was some, like, like outcome that was going to be improved, because that phone call had some treasure on the other end of it, like valuable information on the other end of it. Because yeah. if they're not invested in the outcome, you know, they can just crank the treatment plan and fill out the form, and on, on we go. Right.
0: And their hands are kind of clean at the end of the day, because we we checked the boxes, so to speak. And we have way too many systems where we're just checking the boxes and that's what we're responsible for inside of what the money is doing. And we need way more creativity um, to incentivize both leadership and ingenuity and the way that money follows the system and the purity of the compensation plan and connecting that to as closely to where the results are as possible is is really important, right?
1: Um, I'm excited to be talking about this a lot more on future podcasts because I think again, it's a place where it's really, really clear in your head. And <laughs> the rest of us are just starting to get a glimpse of the way you're thinking about it. Um, because you you said the pure compens- when you got com- compensated for results, you were talking about inside Doterra about the conversation we did about what it took to go to go gold. And the work you had to do, and that had nothing to do with effort or hours or checking a box. I mean, that's how I tried to do it right and was not successful. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, but actually, I'm really happy you said that, because let's imagine that this system, this organization spent, um, you know, $80,000. It's actually far more than that, but $80,000 that Medicaid probably paid this organization to have my kiddo for eight and a half months or whatever. If they could have produced a result in a month, there would have been no, incentive. it would have actually been the opposite of an incentive to do that. And I would happily pay somebody a hundred grand who could produce a result for my kid in a month. If that result could be, if that result could be produced. And the fact that the kind of creativity and ingenuity and all those things that could come into place, there's zero incentive for that. So it gives a pretty clear example, right? Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad you said that because I've been
1: on some commercial um, projects where people were playing around with that idea of paying for the result regardless of time and effort. Um, so I wasn't even on this one. I just helped craft the compensation for it. Um, I, it was a software project and I had just started learning about um, agile software development, which I don't want to talk about forever, but (laughs) the idea is um, you have these, at at the time what we were doing was these time boxed iterations of, you know, a month, a month, or two weeks, two weeks, whatever, and approximately what you would get done in each of the iterations. So our company sat down with the customer, uh, created um, like basically 12 months worth of work and like chunked it up in the chunks and agreed on a price for each of the chunks you know, let's say each, it was way more than this, but let's say each one was like 10 K. So we're looking at $120,000. Um, and there was a clause that said, if at any point the customer said, okay, we've got the result we want, then they would split whatever was left. Um, right. That actually happens a lot in software where we people have this grand plan of what they want. And then a lot of times, if you build them just 60 to 80%, they're like, you know what, that's probably good enough. Like, I don't care about changing the color or whatever the things are Um, and that's actually what happened after after about eight or so of the iterations out of 12 the customer said okay um we're good and we pocketed two of the remaining and they pocketed two of the remaining and it was fantastic because the you know the incentive normally would be for us to squeeze every last drop um, out of it and work the full year But this way, we had this huge, you know, windfall, basically, because our team produced such great value in a shorter time than we anticipated. Um, And so we were both able to walk away with they saved and we made extra and everyone was happy. So. These kinds of and that one, and nobody on the project. That so the piece that's missing that you're talking about is. I was gonna say, and then Allie said, <laughs> and then Allie said that's great for the company. Well, that's not even the example. What I just told you just now. <laughs> it's not the one I said you know, earlier really. we about before, but that, that stops at the company level right now because nobody on the team got to pocket,
0: you know, two months salary or whatever. Right, they or. didn't get two months off or right, whatever. Even if that that point it had gotten split, like the team gets half, the company gets half. That still would have been a phenomenal result compared to I'm sure what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. They didn't go to that next
1: level, but it's, it's not unheard of um, that these kinds of, you know, result based things. um, And do you want want to talk about the time I solved a problem for you and you blew my mind when we first met? Sure. I
0: think that's a great,
1: right. (laughs) So, (laughs) Oh, are we ending? Okay, so <laughs> I think that's like the best possible yeah. story to end on. I love okay. it. So because I'm still learning, like that there's value to be had outside of, like, completely independent of time and effort. Um, like that's still,
0: ugh, my brain doesn't wrap around it still. So when I first and also most of society still mostly functions off of that True. time for money right. model, not right. time, yeah. not value for money. Yeah,
1: yeah, or even effort for money, right? Like. Yeah, Um, you know we're we're buying a new AC. God help me, it's like 100 million degrees. But um, (laughs) and uh, it's a fixed price. Like you're going to give me a new air conditioner and install it, and I pay you X dollars. Um, Right. And there's no way to say. And if it's you know faster or whatever. So anyway, when we first met, um, you at the time with your ex-husband had a startup, a software startup.
0: Yes. It wasn't a software startup, but it was a. We needed so much technology because of what we were doing that didn't exist. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. So it was some product project that you were building. You were building a product to achieve your result.
0: And we were out for sushi, I
1: think. I can still remember. We were just sitting on that <laughs> little patio. And um, they were talking about some really hard problem. And I solved it. And I would say I actually solved it pretty well. Um, yeah it was an awesome solution yeah and and we're just over dinner and Allie turns and she's like okay we want to give you one percent of the company and I'm like are you kidding me I'm just spitballing with you over dinner and I'm like that took me you know 20 minutes or whatever to solve that problem you're like yeah but the problem the size of the problem is worth one percent of the company and that still to this day blows my mind (laughs) um I mean, the punchline is it didn't end up being worth anything, but that's
0: a story. I was going to say, it would have been so much better if at that very moment the company had gotten handed over to just you and I to manage, because then we could have really made that worth something, but instead right. it was squandered. But, right. but we'll I mean, produce that value somewhere else. Yes, totally. I I'm, I'm, I
1: have no doubt. Um, someday when we're we're like, everybody knows who we are and they're listening to these, they're like, can you believe back then? We didn't even know who these <laughs> ladies were. Um, But that... I, that paradigm was one that I, it, it just was jaw on the floor, um, you know, because that paradigm just didn't exist for me. I mean, it's at the closest one would be winning the lottery, right? Which isn't, and <laughs> right. I never play the lottery, um, but it was like that big of a windfall, like, whoa, but really it, I think that would have been good value for your company too, because I think I saved you at least, oh my gosh. you know, whatever the side of the problem.
0: Um, yeah. And when I think about how many companies would just cringe at the thought of paying somebody like that, it's still really part of the problem, right? Like how cool would it be if we had this economy where companies just put up problems? Like these are really big problems. If you can solve it, we'll give you X. Like they could access a ton of valuation and a ton of, you know, good solutions. But instead, I don't know why I said valuation, but if they looked at their valuation and they could accomplish a ton of value, um, and we just don't even look at problem solving like that. So they waste money on a zillion things and, you know, hire one consultant or another or, or the company fails um, for lack of resources that exist out there because we haven't learned to incentivize people like Lynn to just spit out the answers that right. float around in their brain.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure you could have hired a consultant who would charge you $50,000 and not solved the problem.
0: Yeah. Right. And, I, and we couldn't have afforded that, right? right? So how many companies, if they could just say, here's the problem and let's solve it, who can solve it will reward? Like, that would be such a more phenomenal system to work in. Right. Totally. Okay. So um, I hope that- You're still worth 1% to me, Lynn.
1: I'm worth 1%. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: totally.
1: The, the clock on being able to be mean to me is running out. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're worth way more than 1%. No, I'm just joking. You're worth 2N. Um, 2, 2N. 2, 2N. Two two, two N. It is hard to understand it. Like if I wrote it down, it would have made more sense to you. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes.
0: <laughs> I got it once you explained it.
1: <laughs> well, and also it's 2, 2 right in a row. Like if I had said 1, 2N, you might have understood it better. But 2, 2N. Two, So we still owe episode part two to N about systems (laughs) that pull for greatness, but I hope we hinted at it. And we barely scratched the surface of, like, we didn't even really talk about Medicaid getting paid for value um, for results. But, um, I mean, we could save that for in the next one. I think everybody can think of
0: some example where the insurance company, you know, played the wrong way inside of, you know, whatever was happening with their parents or children or whatever. Totally.
1: Totally. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. And I hope
0: thank you to everyone who listened and yes, uh, like us say nice things about us, share these conversations. If you think they're valuable.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right. And we'll see you next time from the ladies room. From the ladies room. Ciao.
1: Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to catch us in the ladies room. You can also find Lynn at A Spacious Life on Facebook, Instagram, and in Clubhouse. And
0: find Allie at 5 Billion Entrepreneurs on LinkedIn and Instagram.